0: It is good to be back, Uh, not that we didn't enjoy our time off, for those who didn't realize we were missing, Um, even if you were here. So um, we do appreciate you guys making it possible for us to take that trip, Uh, it's very relaxing, very good to get away, kind of hit the reset button and uh, get yourself geared up for what is to come. So since Dave and Daniel uh, coordinated and, and stuck to our track of scripture that we've been following, I'm going to start right back up in Matthew 13 with verse 44. Um, this passage is going to uh, it's going to be made up of three parables and a lesson, a lot like a lot of sermons uh, that you hear around the United States. Um, not mine because I don't do that. But these, uh, these three parables here, two of them are, are very, very, very similar. Well, the third is a review of something else that we've already heard, uh, but with a very important application. So I'm going to quit giving you the, the prelude. I think everybody's turned to chapter 44 or chapter 13, verse 44 right now. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand, as is our custom. Hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, never let us take for granted what we have heard. Never let us forget that there is treasure in that word for us as we listen. Father, help us to be changed by what we hear today. Through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So... The first two parables, the parable of the hidden treasure, the the pearl of great value, are essentially saying the same thing. The the interpretation of these, very, very, very simple. Okay? Um, You may have never thought about it before, but since they're really short, one is one verse, the other is two verses, and they're located right next to each other, why... Do you think Jesus might teach the same thing with two different parables right next to each other? What's that? Mixed audience? Okay. Um, Maybe he was trying to make a point. Maybe he perceived that some in his audience were not really paying attention. Right? Maybe they're just a little bit slow to understand. Some of us have that issue in the morning. Right? A little slow to understand. Some of us have that issue all day long, especially when the coffee runs out. The brain stops firing on all cylinders. Um, I'll be honest with you. I asked that question. I I got to thinking about it. And I really think that this Jesus did this because of something that I've talked about in here a lot. Um, It's a a literary device. It's a speaking device. Uh, As a literary device, it was used a lot in the ancient world. Right? In today's world, we have text, we have word processors. If you're writing a document you want to emphasize something, you may put it in bold print. Or if you're texting somebody and you want to emphasize, you make it all caps lock. Right? Um, well, they didn't have caps lock in the ancient Greek. They didn't have those bold typeface. You know, you, you took your care writing with that quill pen. Because if you made your strokes too bold, you'd break it. So the text was all the same. There wasn't those tools that we have for emphasis. So what they would use is repetition. Repetition. There you go. You hear it, and then you hear it again. That means it's more important. Now, as a spoken tool, we still use it today. In my civilian occupation as an instructor at keesler air force base we have instructors who are known as podium kickers right a podium kicker is somebody who says okay now what i really need you to get out of this lesson is this hint 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 this we repeat it and in fact i have told my classes many times if i say something and then i write it down and then i say it again It's not because they pay me extra for extra words. It's because you need to know it. We repeat things so people can understand them and they can sink in to your mind. My kids in the Awana program, as they have progressed from the very smallest Awana cubby, or even Puggle in one instance, through to where they are now Awana leaders... They use the tool of repetition to help children memorize Scripture. Because if you say it once, it might get stuck in your short-term memory. If you say it twice, it'll it'll more likely get stuck in your short-term memory. If you say it three times, then it's probably stuck in your short-term memory. And and any of y'all ever watch the Andy Griffith Show? Do you happen to remember the episode where Barney's trying to repeat the oath as a, a sheriff's deputy and Andy's got the book and he can make it through like the first word and then Andy says it and he repeats it and Andy says it and he repeats it. That's how the kids are trying to say these things that they've never done before. They've only said them once or twice. It's in that short term part of the memory. But if you want to get it into your long term memory, you've got to use it over and over and over. That's why most of us have no problem especially if you've had a driver's license for a while, remembering how to drive a car. It's embedded in our long-term memory. It's something we've done so much, it's almost become instinctual. Except for most Mississippi drivers. (laughs) Or their instincts are really bad. Okay? So this practice of repetition here, let me show you how it's used. Raise your hand if you have ever in your life Watched a television show or listened to a program on a radio. And I mean like the old programs on the radio, the old radio serials, okay? All right, so you've listened to a show or you've watched a show on TV, okay, right? So you're watching an hour-long show on television. You're 10 minutes into the show, what happens? Commercial break, right? Commercial break, and you see an advertisement for product whatever, and then your show comes back on after a couple of commercials and, and you're watching, you're about 15 more minutes in, and there's another commercial break, right? And this is different products. I will almost guarantee you the third commercial break, you will see a repeated commercial for one of those products from either the first break or the second. Why? So you remember it, because when we repeat things, when we see things repeatedly, uh, who's the lawyer that you call if you've had a bad car accident in South Mississippi. Okay? Or Shunara, right? He's the one out here, upside down, because I see his advertisements all over the place, right? You can read the sign. That's right. So, these advertisers aren't stupid, they understand that the more they put their product in front of you, the more likely it is you're going to remember it, right? So when you go to the store, that brand recognition is going to be the first thing that hits you. If you have an option to buy a vehicle, just gut response. Who buys a Ford first? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Because that's what you're raised with. That's what you've driven. That's what you like. Who buys a Chevy first? Who buys a Dodge first? Who buys a Honda first? See, brand recognition. It's that repetition stuff. It's what we're comfortable with. It's what we're familiar with. It's the same premise here that Jesus is using to teach this. It's the same reason why songs that you listen to will get stuck in your head. You ever find yourself walking around whistling a song and you stop? and you, Where did that come from? Songs get stuck because of repetition. Jesus is illustrating the importance of this idea that the kingdom of heaven is valuable. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. We have two people. We have the man who finds a treasure in a field. He covers it up. Now, what's he doing in the field? We don't know. Is he a farmer? Maybe. Doesn't tell us. Jesus just says he finds a treasure in a field, and he hides it. He buries it. He sticks it under some, some brush. He, he kind of rakes the grass so that it doesn't stick out that he's been out there. He does whatever it takes to hide it. And then he goes, and he sells everything and buys that field. Does he buy it for a fair market price? Probably not. He probably offers above and beyond what the guy is asking for to sell it. Because he knows how valuable that field is. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. You have the pearl. Guy's looking for a pearl. And he finds pearls. Where do you find pearls? Oysters. Where do you find oysters? In the water. So he's looking for these pearls. But then we're told that he finds one of great value that he had to buy. So even though he was looking for pearls, he was probably looking in a jewelry store or a a purveyor of gemstones. He was in a marketplace. And when he found one that was so great, he went and did what? He sold everything that he had to buy that one pearl. There's a lesson here. And if you've spent any amount of time in the church, you've probably heard it before. At one point, Jesus tells those who've come to hear him that unless they hate their mother and father, they cannot follow him. That's one of those hard sayings of Jesus. We don't like that saying of Jesus. We don't feel comfortable when Jesus says, unless you hate your parents, you can't follow me. Wait, whoa, hang on now. Pretty sure there was a commandment that said, honor your mother and your father, right? And now Jesus is telling us we need to hate our parents? No. That doesn't line up. So how do we understand that verse? He's saying that unless your love for him is so great that it makes your love for your parents look like hatred, then you don't love him enough. You have to give up that attachment for this attachment. I love Steph. We've been together for 28 years. Think about that for a second. We've been married almost 25. Okay, there's a lot of couples in this world who can't say that. A lot. Okay? I love her dearly. I love Christ more. I have to. That's that statement that Jesus makes. He tells one disciple. Disciple comes to him and says, Jesus, I follow you, but give me time to bury my, my... my father first, he's, he, I, need, I need to bury him. Now, we don't know if he's already dead or, <laughs> or if the disciple is looking forward to an impending death. We don't know. He says, let me bury my dad first. And Jesus says, no, Let leave the dead to bury the dead. Follow me. He expects us to give up whatever we have to follow him. In fact, he makes this statement that we have abused and beaten up And misapplied so many times it's not funny. He says, take up your cross and follow me. How do we abuse that? Well, you know, I got this really hard person that I have to deal with at work. And I guess that's just my cross to bear. Uh, No. To a first century Jew, when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, what did he say? Die. Die. You have to die to yourself and follow me. You have to give up everything that you have, including the possibility of your life to follow me. You have to be willing to die to follow me. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The kingdom of heaven is so great a treasure that we need to be willing to let go of every earthly attachment in pursuit of it. Now there's another point here that I want to I want to make. In the first parable there's a man who finds a treasure and he goes and sells everything. Second parable there's a man who finds a pearl And he goes and sells everything, right? How many people found the treasure in the field? How many people found the pearl? How many people walked past that field? Probably more than one. How many people were in that market looking at the pearl? I can tell you, when we stopped in Cozumel... In Cozumel, the port of Cozumel is a a shopping mall, basically. You get off the ship, you go through the duty-free shop, and then boom, you're in a shopping plaza. And there's jewelry stores from all over the place. And they're packed. Because people are attracted to the sparkly and the shiny. How many people looked at that pearl? A lot. A lot. And how many people went and sold everything that they had to acquire it? One. So I've made this point for you all before too. Why didn't everybody find the treasure in the field? Why didn't didn't everybody see the value of that pearl? Because it wasn't given to them to see it. Jesus said back at the beginning when he was going through and and he started teaching in the parables and then his disciples said, So why are you teaching in parables? And he said, look, to you it has been given to understand the things of the kingdom. To most everybody else it has not. So I teach in parables to fulfill the prophecy that seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear and learning they don't understand. They don't get it because the majority of people aren't given the ability to get it. That's a hard truth for us. But now here's the thing, if we had been walking around, if this was a real story, if Jesus was really talking about a guy who had found treasure in a field and bought that field, would we be able to know who was going to be the person to do that? No. When Jesus is sitting there and he tells the disciples, I teach because the majority of people just want to hear a good story. They just want to hear a lesson that makes them feel, wow, that was spiritual. They want to be able to leave the sanctuary and say, Preacher, that was a great message. And then 15 minutes later, they couldn't even tell you what passage of Scripture it was on. Most people will not see the treasure, let alone value it the way this guy did. This moves us to the third parable. This one's different says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Any of you ever fished with a cast net successfully? <laughs> do you catch just good fish? No? What do you catch? You catch whatever happens to go through the net, right? And then your next course of action is to go through the fish and the good ones you put into your bucket and the bad ones you chuck back into the water. Right? Okay. Same process. When the net was full, it was drawn ashore. The good fish were put in containers. The bad fish were thrown away. Jesus says it's going to be the same way at the end of the age when the angels will sort out the evil from the righteous and the evil be thrown into the fiery furnace. This is a pointer to the day of judgment when the sheep will be separated from the goats. Or as Dave taught when he was standing here, when the wheat will be separated from the tares, the good grain from the weeds, the good fish from the bad. This is a different judgment than the one that Paul talked to the Corinthians about. Where the works of a person will be judged, good or evil, and those who have their works judged The good works will come out like gold, silver, and precious gemstones. The evil will come out like wood, hay, and stubble. And when they run through a fire, what happens to wood, hay, and stubble? You have ashes. What happens to gold, silver, and precious gems? You have pure gold, pure silver, and purified precious gems. Gems don't generally change when they go through fire. The reason I want to make this distinction is only a little important. It's just the basis of our salvation. (laughs) Just a little important, right? See, because if we confuse these two times of judgment, the judgment where the wicked are separated from the righteous and the judgment where our works are judged, if we confuse them or if we combine them, then we have a problem. Because if our works are judged, right, If our works are judged, and that's what leads to the separation of the righteous from the wicked, where are we all going to wind up? With the wicked. Because Scripture tells us that all of our works are wicked. Everything we do is touched by the sin in our life. If I were to take a 55-gallon drum of water and put a teaspoon of raw sewage into it, how many of you would be ready to come up and take a drink out of it? No, in fact, I say with my mother standing here, if I were to say that I put sewage into it, she wouldn't come close to it. See, all of our works are touched by sin. So there is only one way we are judged righteous, and that is through Christ. Through His life of perfect obedience, which is counted as righteousness for us. See, our sin was placed on him when he died on the cross. But his righteousness was so perfect, and this is hard for us to understand, it was so perfect that not only did he have enough righteousness to counter the sins of the world, but he had perfect righteousness left over. Enough to to impute to our account, and not just ours, but all believers through the ages. And he still had some left over because he was still righteous. That's hard for me to wrap my head around. That's a whole lot of perfection. Of course, I don't know what perfection looks like either. None of us do. Our righteousness comes from him through the application of his death and resurrection On our account. An application that is made by faith. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that faith is whose? It's not ours. It's a gift. God gives us that faith. Whoa. So all of that is to say, without that righteousness, we have no hope. So this day of the fish being separated, that is the day when we stand and Jesus says... If I can use this illustration from elementary school, okay, kids, line up. You go this way, you go this way, you go that way, you go this way, you go this way, you go this, you go that way. On what basis? Whatever the teacher had in mind. Except when we're separated like that, it's going to be whether you have the righteousness of Christ or not. So then, whose works are going to be judged? the sheep, the good fish, the wheat. That's when our works come into account. That's when we're going to stand before God and He's going to say, okay, so you have Jesus' righteousness. You are one of the sheep. Now, what did you do with it? That's what Paul was talking about to the Corinthians. So, We come to verse 51, and verse 52 actually has another parable in it. Did you all catch that? It's another comparison. Jesus asked a question in 51. Have you understood all these things? So I'm going to ask that question. Because we're almost at the end of this chapter, where Jesus has taught, he has taught all these parables... He has taught us the parable of the sower who goes out and spreads the seed. He has taught us the parable of the weeds. He has taught us the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value and the parable of the net. And so He looks at His disciples and so I ask you, have you understood all these things? And His disciples said, yes, if you're one of his disciples, you should be able to say yes. That doesn't mean you understand it perfectly. That doesn't mean you understand it all clearly. And that certainly doesn't mean you're not going to screw up. Peter was one of his disciples. And, come on, Peter. Right? Who do people say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, I've got to head off to Jerusalem and be crucified. No! Peter, really? Jesus says, therefore. Very important interpretation lesson. Anytime you see that word, therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. What is it linking together? If you understand all these things, then, therefore, if then, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Who's the scribe? Who are the scribes? We read about scribes in Scripture. Who are they? What? Lawyers? Okay. Specifically, they are the copyists. Their job is Xerox. (laughs) You could not just walk down to Kinko's in Jerusalem and drop a couple of sheets of a scroll of Isaiah into it, and hit ten copies. Instead, you went to the copy house, where there was a rabbi who would stand at the front of the room with a scroll. And then you had all the scribes sitting in their chairs with their desks in front of them, and their collection of pens. And the, the rabbi at the front would say, A... And the scribes would repeat, A. And then he would say, A, again. And then they would all write down, A. And then they would all say, A, again. And then he would say, N. (laughs) And that was the copying process. I much prefer Kinko's and Xerox. The scribes were those who copied the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. Literally, every jot and tittle, every dotted I and every crossed T, every vocal inflection, every character of the Old Testament that they had copied, they knew it. They knew what it said. And in general, they went on to become teachers. They went on to be rabbis. Because who better to teach than one who knows what it says? So when Jesus says every scribe, He is saying every teacher of the law, everybody who knows what God's Word says, who has been trained. Here's another pause. What's another word we can use for train? discipled. Every teacher of God's Word who has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven. Who's He talking to? He's talking to His disciples there. Who are teachers of the Word? His disciples there. Fast forward to the year 2017 in Gulfport. At this location on Klein Road. Who do we have? His disciples. Those who are teachers of God's Word. Who have been discipled for the Kingdom of Heaven. Those who have been listening to Jesus. Who have been given the understanding of His message. Who have been discipled by Him. Whether they're aware of it or not. Are teachers. Of those who will come after. See, we talked about this again this morning. Sunday school lesson. We talked about this. That when you are delivered from sin. When you are saved. It will lead to mission. It will lead to going and talking to somebody about Christ. Whether that's immediate. Or whether that takes place later down the road. Even the thief on the cross. At the point when he realized who Jesus was, what did he say to the other guy who was going on and cussing Jesus out? Leave him alone, he's the Son of God. Hanging on the cross, dying, his last breath was a profession of faith in who Christ was. And Jesus said, surely you'll be with me in paradise today. Think about that for a second. See, everybody who is delivered from sin will be a teacher of the law. The question is whether we're a good or a bad teacher. Think about Peter at Pentecost. Peter, the shoe leather express. I swear, the guy had his foot in his mouth more times than you can imagine. When he was walking around with Jesus, everything that he said. And in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit lights on the church, Peter stands up in front of a group of men and says, This Christ whom you crucified is the one. He's Messiah. And thousands were added to the church. Peter, who then went on to argue with God in a vision. Okay? He didn't stop with Jesus. He argued with God. In his vision, before he went to Cornelius, he saw the sheep with all the unclean animals come down. And God said, go and eat. And Peter said, no, I'm a Jew. Because God needs you to tell him who you are. He did that three times. And then he went to Cornelius' house and he preached the gospel. Think about that for a minute. All believers are teachers of God's word. And he says that these teachers who've been discipled are like the master of a house, a, a homeowner, a host, if you will, who brings out of his treasure, of his goods, of his possessions, the new and the old. You're hosting a party at your house. You're going to clean your house, right? And if you don't know what this looks like, I'll invite you to our place around Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. So, when this happens, the homeowner, the host, is going to pull out the good china. They're going to pull out the good glasses, the good silver, the good to make the house look good. Right? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus isn't condemning it here. But he says the one who's been trained is the one who brings out both the new and the old. We've got some china around my house that is rather seasoned, okay? Apparently, my mother-in-law got it by buying laundry detergent. Back in the day when they used to do that stuff. I'm not that old. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Yeah. But we also have China and flatware that is new. And we mix and, and we lay things out so that they look presentable and they're decent. And so, Jesus says that this scribe or teacher who's been discipled is like the master of the house who brings out that which is new and that which is old. Let's put this in context. What are we talking about? Well, the, Israel has a historical context. It starts with Adam. Adam. And it progresses through to Noah. And then it progresses through to Moses. And it progresses through to David. And to David's son, Christ. And it also has the new. See, here where Jesus is talking, that's the new. It doesn't eliminate the old, the old doesn't go away. We have to have the old to understand the new. This is speaking about a proper understanding of history, the history of Israel, and looking forward to the coming Messiah. And in our case, this has to do with the history of the Messiah who came and what He's going to do in our future. Not just when He comes back. I'm not just talking about the whole, you know, trumpets and whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, premillennial, post-millennial... I'm not talking about eschatology. I'm talking about what's he doing in your life today? What's he going to do this afternoon? Wait, what? Yeah, he works in your life every day. The teacher who is discipled for the kingdom is going to understand that and apply that. And one last thing that the host does with that new and the old is they open the doors to their house and they share it with people, right? It means we can't sit on it. It means we can't just hold it close and be happy that we're on the bus and I don't care anybody else is. That's not the right attitude. In fact, Jesus says that there is a summary of two commandments in Scripture. Here's here's the summary of the commandments, right? Love God with everything that you have and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't not care if they're on the bus if you're loving them the way you're supposed to. So this description here of the master of the house who brings out of his treasure that which is new and that which is old, that should apply to us. Which means that we need to make sure that we have those new treasures and those old treasures at hand. That means we need to be Acquainted with the scripture. Because if I don't open this except on Sunday morning to read the passage that the preacher is talking about. If I don't read this Monday through Saturday at all. If the only time I crack this word is in conjunction with the reading out of the daily bread devotional. And the rest of my life, it sits on a shelf. How acquainted am I going to be with what it says? Not very. How easy is it going to be? Okay, I'm going to pick on my folks again. Okay? A little over a year ago, they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly. Now they moved to Biloxi. (laughs) They packed all their stuff up. Out of the place that they had lived, on the lot that they had lived for a really long time. Really long time. it's Like, as old as I am, long time. For the most part. Loaded it all up in a U-Haul truck. And they moved down here, and we unloaded it into a storage unit. Yesterday, Mom spent some time looking for a piece of her embroidery machine. Yeah, Gabe spent some time looking. Mom was pointing. How hard is it to find stuff that's packed away in a storage shed? Absolutely. It's miserable. I don't even have to go that far, right? This Friday, I had to fix washing machine. It had a leak. This washing machine uses a 9.30 seconds hex nut to hold all the panels in place. And a torx bit for those that are screws. Okay? I have one T20 Torx bit in my possession. I know right where it was supposed to be. It was in my little leather toolkit with my 930 seconds nut driver. I didn't know where my toolkit was. It was right where it was supposed to be, which is why I couldn't find it, because he never puts things back where they're supposed to be. Okay? But if we don't use those tools, if we don't stay engaged with those tools, if we don't interact with that knowledge, if we aren't in the Word all the time, that knowledge, those tools, could be right where they're supposed to be. And that stuff in the storage unit can be right where it was supposed to be. But we're not going to be able to use it. We're not going to be able to put any use to it. And when it does come time for us to use it, we're going to be frustrated, we're going to be reluctant, we're going to be hesitant. The same can be said for God's Word. When the time does come when you have an opportunity to share it with somebody, if you've not opened it recently, if you've not read it recently, if you've not studied it at all, You're going to be reluctant, you're going to be hesitant, and you're going to be frustrated when they ask a question that you can't answer. So, if we claim to be disciples, if we claim to be trained up for the kingdom of heaven, we probably ought to start living that way. Would you all agree?